The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. September 29th, 2020. Five weeks from today is Election Day in America. Tonight is the first presidential debate. There's a kind of tradition that incumbents do badly in the first debate. Reagan against Mondale in 84, Bush against Kerry in 2004, Obama against Romney in uh, 2012. And then the incumbent recovers to win re-election. That's the tradition. But these are non-traditional times in which one side has advanced from merely urging the death of its opponents on social media. I'm not talking about just uh, those many tweets demanding that someone kill Trump or Mitch McConnell, but Snohomish County Democrat Council member Megan Dunn uh, inspiring Americans to, quote, be the light you want to see in the world, unquote, above uh, Megan Dunn's illustration of a flaming Molotov cocktail. As I said, they've now advanced from uh, being merely cheerleaders for murder to getting off their flabby butts and actually going for murder themselves. Tatiana Turner, a big-time Black Lives Matter honcho from Yorba Linda, California, plowed her car for a group of Trump supporters injuring two. Ms. Turner has been charged with attempted murder. Uh, When that guy in Charlottesville, remember that? Uh, When that Charlottesville guy plowed his car through a crowd, the media more or less hung that around Donald Trump's neck personally. But a BLM organizer runs over Trump supporters and suddenly all homicidal vehicular attacks are local. The Charlottesville guy, James Fields, a 20-year-old schizophrenic, killed one person, Heather Heyer. But for various reasons, he received two life sentences for that one murder and then had an additional 419 years tacked onto them for, quote, malicious wounding and aggravated malicious wounding. If I understand Virginia law correctly, he'll be eligible for parole 14 years after he's dead. So sometime in the early years of the 22nd century. Any aggravated malicious wounding charges headed Tatiana Turner's way? Oh, perish the thought. Did Kamala Harris pay Miss Turner's bail? Or did she leave it to a Joe Biden staffer? Or maybe Seth Rogen? Uh, I'll say a word about uh, tonight's Trump-Biden showdown. Possibly tonight, uh, certainly uh, tomorrow and by the end of the week. Meanwhile... In what the State Department maps refer to as the rest of the world, we are in grim milestone territory. Uh, Worldwide deaths from the Chinese coronavirus have now crossed the one million mark. One million dead from CHICOM-19. A fifth of those are from just one country, the United States. A third of those are from just two countries, the US and Brazil. Half of those from just three countries, America, Brazil and India. So, as I said many months ago, this pandemic has an unusual distribution. Um, Now, I don't want you to think I'm some conspiracy nut, so let me give you the official statistics from the European Union's European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control. Can't get more respectable than that, can you? And I'm talking about deaths now. 
uh, because nobody wants to die of this thing, do they? So I was interested to see where the lowest death rate per million people uh, on the planet might be in case I decide to flee for my life and live there happily ever after. So the place you're least likely to die of this thing is East Asia, i.e. China, North Korea on the one hand, and on the other, Japan, Singapore. Uh, East Asia, where the death rate is three people per million. The next safest place on the planet is sub-Saharan Africa, where the death rate is 23 per million. If you work your way up to North Africa, it gets to 56 per million. The most dangerous places on Earth to be are the Americas and the European Union, where the death rate from COVID-19 varies from between 366 per million in the EU and 584 per million uh, in North America. Really, it's, it's amazing to me that Africans are still pouring into the COVID slaughterhouses of Europe and North America when they'd be so much safer uh, just staying where they are. Or indeed, like Miss Ilan Omar, uh, going back home to Somalia. Uh, Let's just stick with these official statistics because they're comedy gold. China, which gave this disease to 200 other nations and territories, has an amazing death per million rate of 3.4 people. Uh, Amazing. According to the official statistics, COVID-19 becomes 60 times more lethal just by leaving China. The death rate per million for the rest of the planet is 203. 203 fatalities per million people just by getting on the plane out of Wuhan and flying to Milan or Madrid, Stockholm or Seattle. The virus becomes 60 times more lethal as it clears Chinese airspace and the COVID's relaxing in a first class seat with a glass of bubbly and a moist towelette. Then we have the experts whose predictions failed to come to pass almost instantly a week ago. Actually, eight days, to be fair. Eight days, September 21st. Britain's two top experts from the hilariously named SAGE, that's the United Kingdom's scientific group for emergencies, SAGE, uh, held a... I don't know what the A stands for, if you're wondering. Anyway, uh, they held a press conference. Uh, that's, That's to say the chief... Scientific advisor Sir Patrick Bollocks, FRS, FRCP, FMedSci, and the chief medical officer, Professor Chris Whitless, CB, FRCP, FFPH, FMedSci. And they did the usual thing, second wave, rocketing into the stratosphere. Uh, And then more specifically, they gave their predictions for the coming week, all of which were wrong. For example... A week ago, they predicted that Monday, September 28th, would see 7,205 new cases. In fact, there were 4,044. So that's basically a little better than 50% accuracy a week out. We make jokes. We make jokes about the American pollsters, but nobody thinks Gallup and Pew are off by 44%. You need official credentialed government scientists to be that crap. Meanwhile, back in the real world, Pizza Hut in the UK announced the closure of 29 of its branches with the loss of 450 jobs. Whether or not this virus escaped from a lab, it might as well have done because the cookie cutter response to it by most Western nations was dictated 
by the Chinese Politburo through its stooges at the WHO, the World Health Organization. The Chicoms lied because the global propagation of Chicom 19 was the quickest way to clobber Trump's so-called trade war with Beijing and end it. So weaponizing the virus worked for them and has had the additional benefit of closing down almost all their economic competitors, some of whom seem in no hurry ever to reopen. I'm looking at you, Boris. Meanwhile, the pandemic enabled uh, the Chicoms to tear up their treaty with London and to subject Hong Kong uh, to the communist non-justice justice system and to seize territory from India. Back in May, the Indian army is now pushing back to recover that territory. And as the Chinese army, man for man, uh, aren't very good, the Indians are having some success at that. Did you know that? Did you know that under cover of COVID, the Chinese are in a sotto voce shooting war with India? Uh, they're also flying all over Taiwan's airspace, including during the visits of American cabinet officers. And they're perfectly upfront about why they're invading Taiwan's airspace. Uh, according to the Chinese Communist Party's Global Times newspaper 10 days ago, quote, uh, they are rehearsals on taking over Taiwan, unquote. Uh, while we're in lockdown, the Chinese have never been more unlocked down. China man, China man, friendly neighborhood China man, spins a web round the globe while you're calling JK transphobe. Look out, here comes the China man. Is he strong? Listen, bud. He's got Wuhan infusion blood. Is he cruel? Ask a Uyghur. Global Muslim complaints are meager. They dig. Don't mess with the China man. In the chill of night, in your best guarded labs, it's your copyright. But he's in and he grabs China man, China man. Hong Kong's gone up next Taiwan. Can he buy anyone? Let's ask Mr. Joe Biden, son, too late. Turns out the guy you prayed for, already bought and paid for, he's just a China man. Whew. Okay, that's enough of that. Unless we're going to do something about China, the guys who gave us this thing, the permanent abnormal is a complete waste of time and indeed will generate a bigger public health crisis than the COVID. You can't keep millions of people under house arrest for six, nine months without weakening their immunities to things like common or garden uh, regular old seasonal flu. According to two Boston University studies, the easiest way to avoid getting the COVID is vitamin D. Or vitamin D, if you're a speaker of non-Britannic English. I believe they both work. So if they're out of vitamin D at the pharmacy, you can always get vitamin D. Uh, sufficient vitamin D reduces your chances of getting Chicom 19 by 54%. Uh, on the other hand, if you do have the misfortune to catch it, uh, vitamin D improves your chances of getting through it without either death or complications by 52%. Okay, that sounds that sounds pretty good. Basically, 
reducing your chances of getting it by half, reducing your chances of dying from it by half. So what is uh, vitamin D? Is it expensive? Does it require years of trials and approval by the FDA? No, 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 not at all. No money in it for Big Pharma either. The easiest source of it is sunlight, that big ball in the sky for much of the the, the day. Uh, Does that mean global warming is the cure for COVID? Uh, Well, I'll leave that one for another day. But we all know, we all know that keeping people penned up indoors for prolonged periods of time does nothing for their health. I went to see my old boss, Conrad Black, in federal prison in Miami. And I won't go through all the tedious screwing around from the Bureau of Prisons wankers, but they... Uh, Let me and the other visitors, uh, who were mostly drug lords, moles and baby mamas, they let us into the room first and then they bring in the prisoners after we've been waiting around a while and are all starting to get irritated. So I put my fako face on uh, because I didn't want to betray any shock at seeing a member of the House of Lords and a papal knight in an orange jumpsuit. And I was glad I had my plastic smile on because when Conrad came out, it wasn't the orange of his jumpsuit that shocked me, but the fact that his face had changed colour, the hue of his skin was different in prison from what it had been when I'd last seen him for dinner uh, at the very convivial breakers at Palm Beach. Ever since the COVID hit and I've had no reason to leave the house, I've made a point of being outside for several hours a day just to soak up the old global warming vitamin D from that big ball in the sky. But I live among the hills and lakes and mountains of the beautiful North Country. And if you live in a studio apartment in a big city, that's a lot more difficult to do. In Melbourne, the citizens are permitted to leave the house for one hour a day for exercise. That's basically the regime Conrad was under in prison. You're indoors except for a daily stretch in the exercise yard. The experts like Sir Patrick Bollocks and Professor Whitless and, of course, the revered shaman Mahatma Fauci are destroying the health and well-being of our citizens for no good reason and several bad ones. And after six months of mass confinement, they have no alternative theory of the case. In these trying times, we could all use a little diversion. Watch Mark Stein's readings of work by poets from Robert Browning to Robert Service in Stein's Sunday poems. Whether it's Keats's Ode on a Grecian Urn, John McRae's in Flanders Fields, or James Montgomery's Greenland, Stein brings you the rhyme, rhythm, and reason behind classics and lesser-known delights. Stein's Sunday poems are available exclusively at www.steinonline.com for members of the Mark Stein Club. View the full catalog at www.steinonline.com poems. The Mark Stein Club presents The Hundred Years Ago Show. Shoeless Joe is socksless, the Black Baron is back, and down with England. It's September 1920. Your world news update, the messy aftermath of the Great War continues. General Baron Wrangel, Commander-in-Chief of the nascent state of South Russia, has the rare distinction of having a popular Red Army song mocking him. And yet, the so-called White Russian Black Baron is back. 
Many Bolsheviks know those words. The White Army and the Black Baron are preparing to restore to us the Tsar's throne. But from the Tiger to the British Seas, the Red Army is the strongest of all. Not always, not always. General Wrangel, the Black Baron, and his White Army have just captured Kharkov, the Ukraine's largest city, captured it from the Red Army in what is said to be a major setback for the Bolsheviks. He's young, he's charismatic, he's said to be the most dazzling orator of his generation. He is not yet the leader of his newly renamed political party, but he is certainly its driving force. Fresh from unveiling the party's new emblem, a so-called swastika, the ancient symbol he first saw as a schoolboy at the ancient Benedictine monastery he attended in Lambach, the 31-year-old Austrian has returned from Germany to the land of his birth to talk up the virtues of his National Socialist German Workers' Party. Judging from his reception, Austria and Germany will both be hearing more from young Adolf Hitler. If Herr Hitler is a hit, the Brits are a flop in New York. Police were called to Carnegie Hall after protests against Anglo-American observances of the tercentenary of the Pilgrim Landings brought the evening's events grinding to a halt. Disturbances began when the programme reached the point at which the British national anthem was to be played. As the anthem began, shouts arose from the Carnegie Hall audience. The musicians continued, but several of the young boys and girls of the chorus walked off the stage, as did two men in US Army uniform carrying the Stars and Stripes. The words of God Save the King were drowned by audience members bellowing the alternative American lyric, My Country Tis of Thee, uh, while others shouted, Hurrah for America and Down with England. A group of ladies calling themselves the American Women Pickets for the Enforcement of America's War Aims denounced the British Mayflower delegation as spies plotting to make the United States part of the British Empire. Secretary of State Colby was scheduled to speak, but his remarks remain unknown as the programme was abandoned and the building cleared before he could take to the stage. Also in the United States, eight ball players for the Chicago White Sox have been indicted in the Windy City for conspiring to lose last year's World Series in return for bribes from gamblers. Among the eight was outfielder Shoeless Joe Jackson, who has admitted he took $5,000 from the agent of a gambling syndicate. White Sox owner Charles Comiskey has suspended effective immediately uh, the seven indicted men still on the team roster, including Joe Jackson, who now is not only shoeless, but socksless. Down the track she darted, against the rock she crashed. Turned the engine upside down for Georgie's breast is smashed. The doctor came and examined him, said, George, my boy, lie still. Your darling life may yet be saved if God's own holy will. 
Oh, no, said George, oh, let me die. I want to die so true. I want to die for the engine I love, 492. The doctor came and examined him. Your life cannot be saved. All murdered up for the railroad while sleeping in a lonesome grave. Just a few days ago, we reported the derailment of the train carrying Democrat presidential nominee James M. Cox. Now it's the turn of the Republican candidate. The car bearing Warren G. Harding ran off the rails while crossing an 80-foot high trestle near Millwood, West Virginia. A railroad policeman aboard the train was able to engage the emergency brake on the rear platform to halt it, but too late to prevent the Ohio senator's car careering for 990 feet along the railroad ties rather than on the rails. A few feet more of that bumping and rocking, and the car, including Senator and Mrs. Harding and their 13 guests, would have toppled over into the gulch and plunged to the tangle of rocks and willows in the creek far below. The Senator's party gripped their seats and said their prayers as the car finally came to a rest just beyond the gorge. Only a supreme guiding hand carried our next president in safety beyond that trestle, says the Reverend David Ash, who was in the car ahead. Mr Harding had just completed a speech at the town of Sistersville and was on his way west to Kentucky when the accident occurred. Wireless broadcasting continues to spread in Germany. The largest wireless radio transmitter in the world has begun broadcasting from a set of telegraph towers and antennae at Nauen with a listening radius of 12,000 miles and a capacity for Morse code transmission of 75 words a minute. W.W. Sullivan is dead, a consummate politician and a dominant figure in the post-Confederation affairs of Canada's smallest province. The beautiful Prince Edward Island, made famous in L.M. Montgomery's Anne of Green Gables books. Although not in last year's motion picture of Anne of Green Gables, which moved the setting of the story to New England. Sir William was Premier of Prince Edward Island for a decade and then its Chief Justice for another two. He petitioned the Imperial Government in London to force the Dominion of Canada to live up to the terms on which his small island had joined the Confederation. Sir William died at his daughter's home in New Brunswick but will be buried back home in Charlottetown. I pray to you, old pal, why don't you answer me? My arms embrace an empty space, the arms that held you tenderly. If you can hear my prayer, Me. 
Anyone bereaved knows what it's like to beseech the dead and receive no answer from one's old pal. The prolific American inventor Thomas Edison thinks he can do something about that. He is working on a device that will enable two-way communication with the spirit world. Mr. Edison has told B.C. Forbes of American Magazine that, quote, I am proceeding on the theory that in the very nature of things, the degree of material or physical power possessed by those in the next life must be extremely slight, and that therefore any instrument designed to communicate with us must be super delicate, as fine and responsive as human ingenuity can make it. For my part, I am inclined to believe that our personality hereafter will be able to affect matter. We look forward to hearing from W.W. Sullivan on how the hereafter compares with Prince Edward Island. And that's The Way of the World, September 1920. A hundred years from today A hundred years from today Oh, you know what this music means. Mark's mailbox is on the air. Marie, a first day founding member of the Mark Stein Club from Missouri, writes, What are your thoughts on Lawrence Fox's new party? Uh, he is formed to defend freedom of speech. Well, uh, for those unfamiliar with him, Lawrence Fox is a British celebrity, a member of the famous Fox theatrical family. You may know Lawrence's dad, James Fox, uh, brilliant in Joseph Losey's film The Servant, or his uncle Edward Fox, superb in The Day of the Jackal. His other uncle, Robert Fox, is a big producer. I have uh, a slight acquaintanceship with him over the years. Um, anyway, uh, Lawrence Fox became quote-unquote controversial back in January when he was on the BBC and poo-pooed the idea that the London media coverage of, um, oh, what was her name again? Uh, the Duchess of Sussex. Megan? Is she still around? Whatever happened to her? Did they make her Governor General of Tuvalu or something and she's down there doing good works in the South Pacific? Uh, anyway, he poo-pooed the idea that the British had been racist to Meghan, so everybody denounced him as a big hater and uh, Lawrence Fox became suddenly controversial. Uh, as to Marie's query about a party to, quote, defend freedom of speech... Well, let me give you a personal note from back when the uh, Canadian Islamic Congress were attempting to criminalise my writing uh, uh, via the ghastly Canadian Human Rights Commissions. And when the thing started a little over a decade ago, a big social conservative blogger of the day wanted to organise a mass rally on our behalf at Parliament Hill in Ottawa. Now, as a social conservative, this guy had organized anti-abortion rallies and had always had a spectacular turnout. And Ezra Levant was very keen that he should not organize a free speech rally on Parliament Hill because he thought the turnout would be very non-spectacular. If you're anti-abortion, it's vivid and visceral. Those are babies being ripped from their mother's wombs. If that's not a reason to get out there on Parliament Hill and protest, what is? Uh, freedom of speech, by comparison, is an abstraction. 
and a very bloodless one. What does it mean to most people? Uh, most people exercise their free speech rights very minimally. They're content to talk about celebrities and the weather and the sports news. They don't feel the hypothetical censure of an alleged Islamophobe the way they feel a partial birth abortion. So Ezra felt we'd get enough people to fit in the back of a second-hand 1984 Honda Civic and we'd look ridiculous and it would kill the whole thing. So it never happened. And eventually, as you may know, I won in the court of public opinion by turning the tables on the human rights commissions themselves and making them the issue to the point where all the elites, the the uh, real beneficiaries of free speech, uh, liberal writers such as Margaret Atwood and the pen crowd, uh, all felt obliged to join in. And the other guys found themselves almost totally friendless. Now, that was... Uh, just over a decade ago, and free speech has shriveled since then. And it's the critical whip weapon to the left because their policing of language is so strict that they can uh, very effectively prevent you even from raising certain subjects. And if you can't even raise an issue, you're unlikely ever to defeat the left on it, aren't you? That's their most effective weapon. They rob you even of the words to disagree with them. Um, but as I understand it, Marie, that's not what Lawrence Fox is proposing. Or at any rate, it's not the only thing he's proposing, because otherwise I don't think it would go very far. His new party is being described as UKIP for culture, uh, which I take to mean the fact that any uh, Englishman over a certain age uh, walking through any English city... Uh, would wonder uh, how it came that uh, Britain lost the war and just to whom did they lose it. To me, this is where the old left-right binary has broken down. We have fiscal conservatism, which is, you know, low taxes, control government spending, and social conservatism, which is generally understood to be abortion and other moral issues. But the big growth area is cultural conservatism. What's the point? of uh, Paul Ryan giving you a capital gains tax cut if your entire society is culturally uh, transformed. The, the green, green eyeshade conservatism is total small ball. Uh, so latter-day Republican Party, Tory Party conservatism became the conservatism of small consolations. Cultural conservatism uh, one notices, is the space all the new parties, at least the successful ones, on the continent occupy. Boris Johnson, with his carefully constructed persona of a Woodhousian bluffer, might have been the chap to ride this particular horse to victory, but he seems to prefer to be an Etonian cover uh, for the usual progressive claptrap. So he's proving to be a bit of a lightweight, panty-waist, milk-toast, milk-sop, weedy, sissy, nancy, ninny, nothing when it comes to uh, cultural confidence. UKIP for, for culture is a viable proposition. And if Mr Fox is serious about it, there is a huge gap in the market ripe for the taking. Mark Stein's Last Call.
Suzanne Tremblay was a Montrealer who won a Queen Elizabeth II scholarship to Tufts University in Massachusetts and thereafter had no further use for her beneficent monarch. She became an important figure in the Bloc Québécois at their peak in the 90s when they were with somewhat leaden irony, Her Majesty's loyal opposition in the House of Commons in Ottawa, even though they disdained both the head of state and the state she was head of. It was a time when the deep freeze of the Cold War was suddenly thawed and new nations emerged all over the map, Slovenia, Slovakia, Tajikistan, East Timor. The incompetence or disingenuousness, according to taste, of Quebecois nationalism reached its finest embodiment in Madame Tremblay, in whom the urge to nationhood was never so petty. She attacked Céline Dion for pursuing pop stardom in Los Angeles and Las Vegas rather than in Trois-Rivières and Shawinigan. She accused Joyce Napier You may have seen me with Joyce on various editions of CTV's Question Period over the years. Always delightful company, even as she's dismissing me as a complete boob. Uh, Madame Tremblay accused Joyce Napier of being an illegitimate Radio-Canada correspondent because she didn't have a proper francophone name. She derided Jean Charest, the Premier of Quebec, as being inauthentic because his baptismal certificate said John Charest. In fact, his mother had taken him to the Irish priest, and being Irish, he had heard her say Jean, but wrote it down as John. I had lunch with uh, Monsieur Charret, I think it was last summer. The uh, Quebec-New Hampshire border's been closed so long, I'm beginning to lose all track of time. And in the course of some jolly reflections on Quebecois separatism, Monsieur Charret mentioned that someone had attacked him for being baptised John. And I said, ah, yes, ah, oui, Madame Tremblay. And he went, wow, you remember her? Ah, yes, I will long remember her, mainly as the reason why, in an age of dozens of new nation-states, Quebec failed to join their ranks. Dead at the age of 83, former House opposition leader, in the Canadian House of Commons, Suzanne Tremblay. Among the many strange social phenomena of contemporary Japan, where adult diapers outsell child diapers, where cat cafes proliferate so that lonely single persons can enjoy a nice cup of tea and some tactile contact with a feline substitute for spouse or progeny, where children's doll makers have diversified into making dolls for grown-ups to be the kids and grandkids they didn't bother having themselves, where huge percentages of young Japanese have no experience of or desire for any romantic relationship whatsoever. To these many strange contemporary phenomena, we must now add the recent spate of celebrity suicides. The wrestling star Hannah Kimura killed herself at the end of May. The screen, stage and music star Haruma Miura hanged himself in July. The actress Sei Ashina was found dead earlier this month. And now Yuko Takeuchi is among their number. She won the Best Actress Award in the Japanese equivalent of the Oscars three years in a row. 
everyone in Japan has seen Miss Takeuchi in something or other, even if it's only a commercial for Suntory beverages. Uh, the beer is called Pomp and Circumstance, which is uh, English, obviously, Sir Edward Elgar, last night of the proms. Uh, but for some reason... Uh, Miss Takeuchi enjoys its pleasures to the strains of the Brazilian song Brazil. Nippon no premium ni ale beer toyu atarashi kaze. Sawayaka ni kaoru premium. Sawayaka. The premium moruzkara. Yuko Takeuchi's most recent international success was as the eponymous star of the HBO series Miss Sherlock. Yes, a distaff contemporary version of Holmes. The trailer billed her as, quote, the most beautiful Sherlock, and she was. Found hanging in her apartment by her husband at the age of just 40, the actress Yuko Takeuchi. Sir Harold Evans, to give him his formal title, Mr Tina Brown, as he occasionally seemed to be during the last third of a century, was a brilliant crusading editor of the Sunday Times of London, a man who made investigative journalism matter. He exposed the thalidomide scandal, the drug for expectant mothers, that left many of their children with deformed and shortened limbs. He revealed Kim Philby to be one of the Cambridge spies. His boss at the Sunday Times was the second Lord Thompson, a Canadian press lord uh, who lost money on his English papers but kept them on because they'd been the jewel in his late father's crown. When the greedy, ravenous trade unions shut down the papers for over a year, Ken Thompson, far away in Toronto, lost his sentimentality about the titles and sold them to a far wilder colonial boy, Rupert Murdoch. Mr Murdoch put Harry Evans in charge of the Daily Times, the Thunderer, with a brief to shake it up. The Times had always referred to people by their... uh, Honorifics in uh, the headlines. Mr Heath, wary of union proposals. Mr Carter speaks of malaise, that sort of thing. And stylistically, Evans decided to end that. And one day, out of the blue, there on the front page was a headline with not Mr Reagan, but just plain, blunt Reagan. I felt that as one of those small, unquantifiable losses... But Mr Murdoch liked it. He didn't like much else, alas. And he fired Harry and the Thunderer never really thundered again. Evans followed his much younger and rather glamorous wife, Tina Brown of Tatler and Vanity Fair and The New Yorker, over to the United States and became head of Random House and chairman of The Week. Uh, But he never, I think, quite mattered in the great central throughway of affairs uh, the way he had in his Sunday Times days. Obviously, Sir Harold and Lady Evans' politics are not mine, but they were always very sweet to me, just because, politics aside, they liked my writing as writing. 
Uh, there's not a lot of that these days. When I would give a talk in New York, usually under the auspices of Nina Rosenwald, Harry Evans uh, would uh, occasionally come along and even better ask good questions. Uh, I remember John Stossel asking me something at one such event and my responding with something to do with Lord Palmerston and the Don Pacifico affair. Harry then got to his feet and began with, I rise in defence of Lord Palmerston. Uh, you know, I'm so bloody bored by the grunting know-nothings on both the streets and the TV shows that comment on the streets. Uh, Harry Evans took me back to the days when newspaper editors were expected to know things. Dead at the age of 92, Sir Harold Evans. Juliette Greco was a singer and actress, and more than that, one of those cultural beacons whose luster you expect to dim inevitably after half a decade, but which she managed to keep going for almost two-thirds of a century. Lover of Sasha Distel and Miles Davis, Quincy Jones and Albert Camus, she was tortured by the Gestapo and inspired Paul McCartney's franglais ballad, Michelle. Here's a song I always love to see her do by Gabby Verlour and Robert Niel, Déshabillez-moi, which means undress me. It's not much musically, it's all in the attitude. Déshabillez-moi, mais pas tout de suite, pas trop vite. Undress me, but not instantly, not too quickly. She was 40 when she first sang it, uh, which can take courage. And then she sang it through her 50s, 60s, 70s, early 80s, late 80s. You've got to be very secure to pull that off, so to speak. And she was. Déshabillez-moi, mais pas trop vite. Prends un demi-siècle. Déshabillez-moi. Déshabillez-moi. Oui, mais pas tout de suite. Pas trop vite. Sachez me convoiter. Me désirer. Déshabillez-moi Déshabillez-moi Mais ne soyez pas comme Tous les hommes Oppressés Et d'abord le regard Tout le temps du prélude Ne doit pas être rude Dévorez-moi les yeux, mais avec retenue, pour que je m'habitue peu à peu. Déshabillez-moi, déshabillez-moi. Oui, mais pas tout de suite, pas trop vite. Sachez m'hypnotiser, m'envelopper, me capturer. Déshabillez-moi, déshabillez-moi. 
avec délicatesse, en souplesse, édouatée. Choisissez bien vos mots, dirigez bien vos gestes, ni trop lent, ni trop leste, sur ma peau. Voilà, ça y est, je suis frémissante et afferte de votre main experte. Allez-y. Déshabillez-moi. Déshabillez-moi. Maintenant, tout de suite. Allez vite. Sachez me posséder. Déshabillez-moi, déshabillez-moi, conduisez-vous en homme, soyez l'homme, agissez. Déshabillez-vous. And you, you get undressed too. It's not a strip tease so much as teasing another to strip. Uh, Juliette Greco, dead at the age of 93, déshabillez-moi. Do remind me to uh, release my uh, English language cover of that. Undress me. Please, don't all stampede at once. That will do it for today's show. Enjoy tonight's debate. I may say a word during the proceedings. If not, tomorrow night with Tucker. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.